I had said, like, my God is not going to allow my daughter to die. And she died. And that was just heartbreaking and just a hopeless place for me in a, in a very isolated, you know, no one, no one knew how to, how to help me. Even my husband didn't know how to help me. Um, and I didn't really, I didn't really want, I didn't really want help. Who do we turn to when the weight of our cross is too heavy to carry? How can we become instruments of healing for those going through challenging situations? In this episode, Kelly Bro, founder and president of Grief Support Ministry Redbird, shares how we can find our way back into a life of virtue after experiencing a great loss. You know, there's this distorted reality where we think that when we face our brokenness, when we face our wounds, or if we talk about it, that we'll actually feel worse. But it's actually the opposite. Like even with my marriage, if someone would have told me that there would have been a greater love than the day we got married, I could have never imagined that I would love my husband and be so joyful now, even through everything we've been through. Together in communion with the church, we can bring consolation to those who need it and help those who grieve back into the arms of God. This is Living the Call. Kelly Bro, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Deacon Charlie. <laughs> I've been waiting all week to say that. Bro <laughs> show. <laughs> let's go. <laughs> it's not it's not very let's go. Exactly. Yeah, go tigers, right? Yeah. Um yeah, it, so how does it happen that a bro actually lives in a, in a city or town called Bro? Like, what's the story there yeah, in so, Louisiana? So my husband's five greats, great, 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 great grandmother was the founder of this small town called Brobridge, Louisiana. She was mm. married to Furman Bro, which was the one of the original settlers in this area, um, who also was um, exiled from uh, Nova Scotia. So through our Catholic faith has traveled oh, really? down the uh, the Mississippi, uh, which now part of it kind of um, tethered off, which we call the Bayou Tesh, and settled here. And so we have, I think it's like a 27-mile journey that we do every year on the Feast of the Annunciation. I mean, not the Annunciation, mm -hmm. the uh, Assumption of the Blessed Virgin Mary on August 15th. We do every year where we reenact that uh, that travel starting north of us and it stops. I think there's seven church parishes. So part of our town is divided by this Bayou Tesh. And so Furman Bro built the first bridge in our community, which was called Bro's wow. Bridge, which later they dropped the apostrophe S and they named the town Bro Bridge. Um, Bro Bridge. Yes. Hmm. So his son married Scholastique, and Scholastique was the first, I guess, mayor who officially put the town together, which was my husband's great, 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 great grandmother. If your if your husband's uh, uh, ancestors made that trip down from Nova Scotia, does that and they were French, obviously, yes. does that mean that they were kind of part of that um, big movement of sort of uh, fur traders and all that stuff that came over real early and were kind of, you know, the, among the first uh, Catholics in in the in the continent? Yes, they were definitely a part of that. I think they were. I, I think they were cattle farmers or sugarcane farmers. I can't remember. Um, Ryan's doing a project right now. Uh, a group of bros in the community are are doing a big historical project uh, where they're kind of learning more about all of this. 
By the way, there's like a thousand and one play on words that you could do with your last name to come up with some <laughs> cool brands or like some new, uh, you know, video series, you know, uh, Bros Bro or something. <laughs> I don't know. They're, they're, yeah. You have a lot of optionality with your last name. Yeah, like our Wi-Fi password is what up, bro? <laughs> nice. Yes. I like that. And then our, uh, I used to do real estate before I did Redbird for five years. And so that was, uh, my email was go with bro and it was spelled G-E-A-U-X with B-R-E-A-U-X. So yeah, we I love that. We, and, we mess with it a lot. <laughs> and now for every for anybody traveling in the Louisiana area, you have ready access hotspot or Wi-Fi since you now know your password. <laughs> uh, so if, for anybody there, they can get online. <laughs> Kelly, I'm super super uh, excited to chat with you for a number of reasons. Um, you know, I've I've known of you and we met you know earlier uh, about a year ago now uh, at a conference up in Napa, and I got to learn a little bit more about you and your husband, and your own story, and kind of what was the the sort of background behind Redbird. But there's one thing in preparation for this meeting that you shared with me that really struck a chord. First of all, I mean, all of your this journey with Redbird has been deeply touched by your own personal experience of grief and loss of a child. Um, but what you said to me, which really floored me because I, I gave this some thought, you said that the church has been making sense of death and dying for 2,000 years. But here in your own personal walk and the things that had happened to you that you experienced, you didn't really find the kind of support for the grief that you and your family were going through. And that was kind of the genesis of this idea for Redbird. Yes. Yeah, so when Ryan and I lost Talon in 2005, this is pre-social media, pre-virtual everything. I didn't know anyone who had lost a child. And so I was very alone and isolated in my grief and they really did not have anyone that was like reaching out. And mm. through through like discovery, um, part of it through OSV, um, actually, like having these conversation, like why is there no grief program in the church? And when I'm talking about grief ministry, grief program, I'm talking about something that is an accompaniment model not just what we do for families the week of the funeral because that to me i don't even remember that week um it was everything that happened sure. after that um when i started asking these converse these questions and having these conversations specifically as why why jason shanks asked me why do you think you were the first and i was like i don't know i've been asking that question to myself so i started asking other people one of the things father dubrock uh, which is uh, our parochial vicar uh, and our vocations director in our diocese told me, he said, you know, the church used to, they used to build a church and the community would build itself around it. And he said people would respond yep. to these needs. But because the advancement of our culture, you know, with our hospital system, you know, we we have gotten past that um, that concept of where, like, death is like, it's more now, I think, a culture shock to people. Like they, it's yeah. not really something that's easy accept, accepted. Even faithful Catholics don't want to talk about death um, when it's a reality. Like we're all going to die, but we're not preparing ourselves for for death, really, because we don't want to talk about it. Um, there's just a, there, there's just it's so complex, um, but simple. I I, I just yeah. don't know, like how to put everything into one program. I think it's going to take multiple different initiatives, which 
you know, Redbird is starting to ca- carve that that mountain. Sure. Well, and, and just to give folks a little bit of context, so um, in 2005, uh, you uh, gave birth to twins, right? Yes. Talon and Emma Grace. Talon, by the way, is among the greatest names I've ever heard. I mean, that's just an amazing name. So I can mm-hmm. imagine St. Talon. That's a, that's a great one. Yeah. But then, uh, um, you know, tragically, uh, Talon passed, um, and then ultimately Emma would pass as well years later. You're, the, the note about... Um, the fact that there really wasn't anything around uh, in the church, you know, obviously the church has had bereavement ministry as like, you know, one of the many uh, kind of areas of ministry that the church is active in, both clerically and also from a lay perspective. But to your point, the idea of bereavement specifically for the loss of a child, that is something that even even me, even preparing for the show, I'm like looking around, what other things could there be that that fall into this category? And it's vanishingly small. Mm-hmm. I mean, really vanishingly small, especially for a country the size of the United States with all the resources and services that it has. And so you definitely hit on um, you know, a pretty big white space there in terms of an area of ministry and service. Yeah, uh, when we started looking into it, the United States has a population of 331 million. And I think if we take what we know to be true, 22% of the population is Catholics, that leaves about 71 million people who will experience the loss of a child during their childbearing years. That is an opportunity to bring people back into the life of Christ after the loss of a child. So many of our families that we served here who you know, between the time that they graduated high school, got married, you know, along the way, they they get lost. Um, And it's definitely an opportunity to be able to to minister them and to love them back into that right ordered living. Um, And it definitely is a missed opportunity that we we are providing compassion and, and charity. But I think what we're lacking is leading people back to the truth. Absolutely. Well, you, you also touched on, and I'm curious about your particular point of view on this, but you touched uh, on how the parochial vicar had given you a sense of, you know, in, the, in times past, the church was the centerpiece of, of, of the town or the city, and things revolved around that, and the needs of the community were reflected in the work and the ministry and, 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 and the lives of all the people who lived around that. Now, obviously, that model has changed. If you go back to Europe, or and, and, and perhaps you've seen this in other parts of the world, but you can still see that. You're driving on a country road, and you'll look over, and you can see that steeple, and the steeple's at the center of whatever the little you know town or village is. It's also the case in Latin America. But now, you know, we're definitely living in a different time where we've got all these other things, hospitals and you know, secular organizations and a variety of things. How, what's your perspective on that dynamic? We, we all know it exists, but is there an opportunity to return in a way to more centrally situate the parish or the church experience as the kind of the, per, the, the entity that doles out things or not? And the reason I ask just before, you know, you share your thoughts is that my wife and I are very active in homeless ministry. And the, the, the same thing holds true, that, you know, if somebody was down on their luck, the old approach was just come and knock on the rectory door or on the parish door or walk in and go to Mass and then talk to folks afterwards. But now in Los Angeles, as an example, you have to pick up the phone and call 211 and kind of get routed by a government agency to a resource that might be able to help you. And even though that seems like it's a good idea, it, it, it creates a lot of distance between the person in need and the person who might help them. So, like, 
How do you view this? Is this a good thing, or is this something that maybe we should look to the past and try to regain? How do you view it? Yeah, that's a great question. I think um, knocking on the priest's door is a great thing, but it also, our priests can't help in our community. We have 12,000 people. It's very, very small. Can't imagine how many are in Los Angeles. That's why whenever, it was almost kind of for me like whenever I needed help and I, I didn't find it and I was kind of mad at the church that I was thinking sure. like it was the, our priests and our, you know, our deacons and their responsibility to do all of it. And it's like the Lord told me, was like, no, you go do it. I think people mm. have to really like understand what the church is. It's me, it's you, it's everyone. We have to step up to provide this opportunity, like this idea that we've, like God has like afforded us this this healing and we're like keeping it to ourselves and not going out and helping other people. That's just not Christian, you know? So I That's think right. for us, I, we have to understand that our mission is the church's mission. We are a part. We are the, the people who are supposed to step up in a time of need. It cannot just be one door that they can knock on. They need a knock on my door in Brobridge. They need a knock on my neighbor's door. They need to know that the church exists beyond that one that one building. But our ultimate goal is to lead them back there. We are the bridge to bring them back into the sacraments. And hopefully in some cases, not even knocking, but actually being out there at the margins, right? Yeah. So people don't even have to have to knock. Yeah. Um, um, <clears throat> when you were going through this grief experience, um, you know, I wonder, or maybe you could talk about, you know, as you're going through this and because there aren't the kind of automatic kind of ministries or person or resources that you, maybe you expected or were hoping for, do you find that people who are going through that experience even have like the wherewithal to share how they feel about what they're going through? In other words, like, what's, what's that experience like? Because it's one thing to go, well, I, I guess, like, intellectually, it would have been nice if when this happened, people reached out to me beyond the funeral arrangements or whatever. But do you even, when you're going through this, have the wherewithal to even share your feelings? Is there, do, do, do you see what I'm saying? Like, do you have the, does it even, is it even born in you to, like, communicate these things? Or is it just, you know, things are happening to you and you're, you're kind yeah. of, you know, in, a, in another sort of dimension as they happen and you don't even have the wherewithal to ask. Yeah, our community, ha our culture has bred generations of people who don't know how to express themselves properly. Like even my husband talked about, like I didn't even know that like there was words to express what I was going through just because growing up you're always like, you know, don't cry, don't do this. So I think, yeah, you're right. No, we don't have the communication skills to be able to do it. It's something that we have to to really be taught and the way that we do it is that it's by witnessing it's sharing people to mm. people with what we've gone through and that's it's like i know with my book a lot of people have shared with me like you put words to my feelings and they just they need people to share their witness Absolutely. I mean, because in that, when you see yourself reflected and you say, that's me, mm -hmm. when you can identify with somebody sharing a similar experience, it's like the beginning of accompaniment, right? Mm -hmm. It's it's relatability. It's it's really, you know, being able to, you know, the old saying of having somebody walk a mile in your shoes, and that's how you kind of create that, that closeness. Yeah, absolutely. There's so many times that I've 
learned from other people and have put words and like, yeah, that I did that. I did that. Um, and the first step is that awareness, you know, that's the first step of conversion is being aware that your life needs to be converted. And so just having these families to be able to share with one another what they're experiencing and being an accompany, you know, accompanying people on the journey, it helps people to realize something that they didn't even know they needed. Mm. I think there's also a parallel between that kind of lack of language or lack of ability to communicate feelings during these moments that in a way is similar. I know it's not the same, but it's similar to um, some of the dynamics that happen uh, for post-abortive women where they're suffering, um, but they can't give voice to that suffering either because they don't have the words or tools for it or because they feel that they're not supported or reinforced by the broader culture. Like this isn't something you should feel sad about in a way. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's, even though they're two totally different things, like the stigma around grief and, and suffering is, is there, it's real. Um, people don't want to be sad. And so if you're sad all the time or, you know, and you're, or you're, you know, emoting your grief or your pain or your suffering, however it manifests in your life, people don't want to be around you. And I mm. had this real, like, I call it come to Jesus meeting when my sister told me after I made my curseo, like I was scared to death of you. She was like, I, I and not like I was f physically going to harm her, but just sure, she didn't like know what to on say. Eggshells. Yeah. She didn't know what to say to me. She did not approach me. And, you know, I, after Talon died, I could still pray. I, I could still hope. But after Emma died, I lost all that because I had prayed, mm. I had begged God, I had said, like, my God is not gonna take my second child. He is not gonna allow my daughter to die, and she died. And that was just heartbreaking and just hope, a hopeless place for me in a, in a very mm. isolated, you know, no one, no one knew how to, how to help me. Even my husband didn't know how to help me. Um, and I mm. didn't really, I didn't really want, I didn't really want help. Um, yeah. you know, th there's this resist, this resistment that, you know, I was trying to be strong for my family. I was trying to hold on to things. Um, but what happens with that when we don't surrender our suffering to the Lord, whatever it is, is that we isolate ourselves and we push people away. And that's what happened to me. It's like I wouldn't let people get emotionally too close to me because um, it, it just it hurt too much to have to express how I felt. Um, but I also didn't trust those people because they hadn't experienced the loss of a child. Yeah. And so I felt, sh I, I felt judged. I felt um, in a rowboat all by myself, which is not the case, but that's, that was truly how I felt. I believed lies about myself that, you know, this must have been a punishment for something I did in the past, mm. you know, because mm. the God that I love, the God that I served, he was good, but this did not feel good. So yeah. there was just this whole slew of lies that I just believed. And I just, once you, you fall away from your faith, it's like, it's a, it's a black hole. And that's kind of what happened oh, to me yeah. is I fell deep, deep, deep into this black hole. 
And then also for me to um, church was not a safe place for me. Um, because every time I would go to church, I would have flashbacks of the coffins in the front of mass. Mm. And then I would hear the babies crying and I would have a panic attack. And so after oh, several wow. times of that happening, I just quit going because it was not providing me comfort. And, you know, like whenever I think back, I'm like, why didn't I go to another church? I, I, I couldn't think. You just, you're yeah. in this place of disbelief. You're paralyzed by your fear. You're paralyzed by your pain. And it takes someone who's experienced that to help people to walk through that. I wouldn't trust. It's almost like a, I'm sorry. I was just, I, I, I didn't trust people who hadn't experienced it. It's almost like there's a, in grief, a bit of a loss of imagination too, right? Where you're, you're understandably so fixated and, you know, being transformed in a way by that pain, by that experience, that things that are outside of it or that immediate kind of, um, you know, discussion, thought, emotion around what's happened, all those things are kind of out in orbit somewhere, kind of, you know, untethered from your reality, where normally, you know, when you're not going through this, you can kind of, uh, you know, engage that imagination, think about other things. Um, this is not maybe the, the best example, but recently my mom, who's 82, uh, you know, took a spill. She took a fall. And, you know, at that age, when people that age fall, it could be a very big deal. And, you know, this happened on a Saturday. I didn't find out about it until Monday. And when I talked to her, I said, Mom, why didn't you call me? I mean, she lives an hour away. I could have driven up and done something, you know. And the, what she said was, I just couldn't even think. The pain was so, you know, strong that I, I just honestly, it just flew out of my head. It was like, a, like I just couldn't process the things that could be there that would come to my aid or help me because I was in such distress. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's so true. You don't know what you need. You know you need help. You know you, you, you're waiting for someone to just come, but you just don't know what you need. And that's where having someone who's been further along on the journey that can take you by the hand and say, this is what you need to do next. You know, focus on yourself. Take time, you know, to process. A lot of people want to just go back to work. They just want to move sure. on and, and stay busy. Grief is going to come and consume you if you do that. You have to take the time mm. to start to heal and process that. There's so many parallels with so many other dimensions of this. You know, um, you know, going back to the the work that 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 I my wife and I do really in homeless ministry. There's this dynamic that happens with people if you don't walk with them, if you don't accompany them. And you kind of just put them up in a whatever it is, a tiny home or an apartment and like all, if all, if that's all you do, all of those, that grief or that trauma or that brokenness, it can actually become even stronger, mm -hmm. even at that moment, because if you don't, if you lack that kind of accompaniment, especially with somebody who understands what you're going through, all those kind of demons, you know, they don't stop coming at you, right? And yeah. just having, you know, four walls and a roof doesn't change that. In fact, in some cases, it can even make it worse, mm -hmm. right? So it's like the accompaniment is really critical. Yeah. And you got to meet people where they are. Like, I can't ask, sure. like, I can't ask people to, you know, come make a holy hour with me to start to veil, like right when they lose their child, you have to love them into like these devotions into this right order thinking. Um, after Talon died, my desire for heaven intensified, like th there was this mm. like 
definite, I wanted to get to heaven because my child was there. But it was very disordered. And it was some, to some degree or another, it was a form of idolatry. But if someone would have told me that right after he died, I would have, oh, I, I might have wanted to punch them. <laughs> uh, yeah. And you might have been okay in doing yeah, so. <laughs> I would have justified it yeah. definitely. But um, you can't, you, we can't do that to people. And it's the same thing that you're saying. Mm. It's like, you know, people, when they're, that when they are loved and they're served in that charity, they're open to truth, but you cannot mm. fire hose them. <laughs> you have to walk with them into that right order of thinking. You have to love them into that truth. And it's a journey and it takes time and it takes a lot of love and it takes a lot of caring, you know, for people. I believe it. I, um, I, I recently heard from somebody who I, who I just met, so I can't say yet. I, I guess I could t- call him my friend, but I, I, I literally just met this person. And he mentioned to me a, a kind of um, a model. It it's all starts with the same letter because like, it makes it easier to remember. But he said that, and hopefully I get this right, but he said that a lot of the models for ministry and a lot of the models even for the church have historically been, you know, believe, behave, belong. And he says, you know, from his perspective, it's kind of inverted, right? It really should be belong. Then you come to believe, right? Then you live a life, you behave, or you live the life that you're, you kind of can see has helped you and brought you out of that. I thought that was really interesting because in a way, it's exactly what you're describing. If somebody had walked up to you or anybody else who's going through grief and said, well, you know, here's the six things you could have done different, even if they were all true, Mm-hmm. All that does is potentially run the risk of actually putting that person further into that grief. Yeah. Well, yeah, because especially if you're not doing all those things and then you feel like it's something that you did wrong that caused your child to die. Like, definitely, I can see where people would struggle. You know, for, mm. for Ryan and I, our children were, you know, under seven years old. So I knew that my children were in heaven. There's a lot of families that we walk with that... You know, they have adult child of loss, and so they don't know if their child's in heaven or in purgatory or wherever. And it's, it's I mean, you, you clearly see, like, it is, it torments some of these families. Oh, and yeah. so having people that can walk with them through that, like, I, even for me, like, I just feel ill-equipped to be able, in that aspect, to, to walk with them um, through the through that part of their journey like that's where these mentors who who've experienced the same type of loss or when you when you partner them up one it it um, it disarms people when they put up these barriers that you don't understand you don't know what you're talking about you know you can't help me it disarms people and so their hearts are open more to receive and just like your friend said with this that first step that belong like that they will trust you if they feel like they belong, if they feel like they can, if you can help them. And then that's mm. when you go into the, you know, it's, it's, it's trying to live our life in virtue. It's trying to live our life, to a sacramental life. It starts with one knowing that you need a conversion. It's saying, I need help. It's um, going to confession. It's, it's, it's taking those steps in, in the order and having a friend with you, it seems less scary. 
And and having a friend with you and and belonging in your own personal um, uh, experience was also critical to you leading you on this journey mm -hmm. of eventually launching Redbird. You know, you talked to me earlier um, about your friend Misty mm -hmm. and how really because she had experienced something similar, you began to kind of connect with her, even though you'd maybe fallen out with your parish community or fallen out in other ways and were in this kind of lost in space kind of moment that it was really that person who kind of knew something or knew it could feel it that gave you that sense of accompaniment that ultimately was a, a big stepping stone for you yeah so my friend misty lost her daughter in 2015 a drunk driver hit her and her daughter and she died she was her daughter was 10 years old and she was the first person that i was close with that had lost a child and she um you know, I thought, you know, in my mind, I experienced three losses. We lost Talon at 15 days old, Emma at almost four, and then I had a miscarriage in 2012. I was 11 weeks pregnant. I had only viewed grief through that lens. And so watching my friend experience grief differently, she held on to the cross. She never lost her faith. She but I, I explain it this way as like where she stood at the foot of the cross like the blessed mother i was like peter and i ran denied 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 i didn't want mm. nothing to do with it i didn't want the cross in my life i had no desire to pick it up i had no desire to offer up this suffering i didn't want it at all and then here was my friend receiving you know receiving the suffering never taking her eyes off of christ there was something so beautiful about that but here's what happens when you're living in mortal sin. That truth that you know that is attractive is twisted by the enemy. And he started whispering these lies to me saying, why you couldn't do that? You know, you're so weak. And I just, the shame and embarrassment started to like build up, you know, in, in my heart. And it was, a, it was to some degree or another, it was, I was jealous of what she had. Like I really, I wanted, I wanted my life back. I felt like I lost who I was. It's like, I tell everybody, it's like I woke up a decade later and I was like, who is this woman with gray hair and wrinkles? <laughs> but it was, it was my reality. And um, I, I was on that journey with her and I trusted her. So like I kept, even though I had all these thoughts and I had all these feelings, I kept them to myself and I continued to walk with her. She invited me a couple of months after her daughter died to make her, to make my Curcio. She had uh, made her Curcio a month after her daughter died. And I was still trying to deflect, even though, again, like I was telling you, I was attracted to that. Um, I told her, I said, I can't make my Curcio because I haven't made my confirmation yet. And I had another friend. Um, we were at, prayer group because you know i forgot to tell you guys one of the things that she started after her daughter died was a friday morning prayer group and we would meet on friday mornings every friday morning to have coffee and um, that was where she invited me to Crisio. and my other friend shandy she said that is a lie you don't have to make your confirmate your confirmation to make your Crisio. but th this is where things change she said but if it's important to you i will go to RCIA and we can make our confirmation together. Mm. And so I said yes to that. I would have never done it on my do own. You, 
when you look back at that moment, when you did you receive confirmation? I did. Yeah. Do you, when you look back at that moment, and maybe it wasn't immediate, but we know that the sacraments obviously are grace filled mm-hmm. and that they activate in our in our souls. It's kind of unusual, right, to have confirmation be that sacrament, maybe at that particular moment in this chronology. But did you, did, were, how, what was the confirmation experience like relative to this journey? Like, how did that, how did that help or provide yeah. some new uh, input into this experience? So my book is How the Catholic Sacraments Healed Me from the Grief of Child Loss. And it started from joining RCIA because... I had to go to confession. That was the first part. And we had a little lady, um, Miss Emmeline. She's in her 70s. And like what Miss Emmeline says, you do. Because she's sweet, 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 gray hair. Lovely, (laughs) lovely little lady. Kind as can be. And she was just like, you're going to make this appointment. Are you going to go here? And I'm like, oh, my gosh. And so I'm type A personality. I go and make a list of everything I've done because I hadn't gone since we... we, we How long had, it had been? More than 15 years. And um, I'm like, I'm going to do this, and I'm never going to do it again. You know, that's my mentality. I'm going to get it all out, everything I did wrong, because I'm not doing it again. And I left that day. I, I, I felt freedom, but it, there was there's still this uncatechized person who experienced the profound, miraculous experience in confession but I didn't understand it and so I could I could share with people like I went to confession like if there's freedom there but I couldn't tell them like why what you know what happens in there um but through RCIA preparing for confirmation I was 37 years old when I made my confirmation and then two months later I left for for Curcio and it's it was like the cultivation of this conversion where um, it's, it's sacramentally infused. There's, I learned why sac- the sacraments healed. It was just this short co- course and just so much grace. And um, it's where I tell everybody, that's where I met the real person of Christ. Like I actually met him there. Yeah. And my life was changed. And it, I think for me, like visually, there's this scene in The Chosen where Uh, I think it's Nicodemus was questioning Mary Magdalene and he was like, was it me that like uh, exercised the demons in you? Exercised those demons. Yeah, Yeah. was it Mm -hmm. me? And she was like, no, I met this man. I was one way and then everything changed. Now I'm another. I'm another. That's exactly what happened at Crisia. Wow. And it was the most powerful thing that I ever had done in my life when I got home the first thing I had to do was apologize to my husband because <laughs> he was the receiver of the toxicity and the mortal sin that had built up in my life but I realized over the course of a year as I processed this and God illuminated to me what had happened was that I was trying to carry this cross in mortal sin I didn't have the grace to be able to do it and that's why I experienced what I was experienced. And it's why our, our, the people in our church can't carry their crosses either. It's because they're living in mortal sin. They don't have the grace to be able to do mm. it. And it's, and it's the difference between kind of like an intellectual understanding of something and then actually living or feeling it, right? The idea that 
um, you know, the sacraments give grace and they kind of tear away those scales from our, our spiritual eyes and we can kind of see in a different way is something that someone can understand. You can explain it to anybody and they can go, oh, I kind of get it intellectually. Mm-hmm. But getting it intellectually and living it and experiencing it through that encounter with the Lord, which is what you just described, right? Mm-hmm. It's the end of all missionary activity, at least it should be, right? Encountering the living God in the person mm-hmm. of Jesus Christ. That is like the beginning and the end of all things. But even though we can explain that, like write it down and read this and people get it, like it's not that they're dumb. If we're not living, and this applies to everybody, all of us at all times, right? If we're not living that sacramental life, that state of grace, it's just going to be a lot harder. It is. It is a lot harder. And that's one of the, um, we've, we've taken our, what we've, experience and we've put it into programs and one of the programs that we do is a it's the retreats for for grieving families so we do one that's uh, called restored it's for grieving moms and what the one for uh, our dads is called follow me and it's for grieving dads and the experience that these these families who have arrived there who haven't been to confession 15 20 30 years and having this retreat just infused with the sacraments with witnesses like it's not just me it's it's dozens of other families who are sharing like this happened to me and people walking with them throughout that weekend on sunday there's story after story after story they Mm. encounter the lord and this is what happens when people understand their faith and it's done through this accompaniment with others who have gone through the same thing how during this whole process right of receiving the the sacraments going back to reconciliation having your confirmation spending time with misty all of these different things is there are there moments of inflection during that period in other words like moments where you go oh it's a wednesday and now on thursday i feel you know i, I have this idea for redbird and i'm just going to launch this or is it a, is it a gradual process like at what point do you decide hey I, i'm now at a place where not only have I been transformed, but now I want to really, you know, take the mantle in a way of the responsibility as a Christian to go and bring this kind of same thing to other people. How does that happen? Yeah. So about seven, I think it was about seven months after I made my Crisio, Ryan went to the man-to-man conference uh, at Our Lady of Fatima in the Diocese of Lafayette. And, um, I had had this conversion. Ryan didn't feel like he needed to make Crisio because he had, he wasn't mad at God. <laughs> and so that was his explanation. And so he was just kind of watching me. And he had he prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed for God to bring us back to church. But he had no idea that it would be me that would lead him back to church. Um, mm. But when he went to this man-to-man conference, he hadn't been to confession again 15 years it was from, uh, he had went to confession the day we got married. And he shared with Father Brady everything that he had experienced and how our, our, you know, our grief, what it did to our marriage. He was in confession for about an hour. And after absolution, Father Brady asked him if Ryan and I would go and speak to their parish because they had five families in two years that had experienced the loss of a child and he Mm. came home with his number and i remember looking at him in our i was like oh that's nice but i'm not doing that (laughs) 
And he's like, well, what do you mean? Why? I was like, I'm not going to cry in public. I am not doing that. And it was like the Lord was just waiting for that crack to open in my heart (laughs) and the idea to be on the front of my of my brain. Because after that, it took it took another seven months for me to call Father Brady back, by the way. But within that seven month period, people in the community that had lost children were showing up in random places all over the place. Like we had this one family. Mm. I had went eat lunch at a place I never eat lunch. And it was it was for my birthday. My friend said, where do you want to go? And I'm like, oh, we can go to Nukes. It wouldn't be something I normally would say, but out of my mouth it came. And her son went to school with an, another woman's son who had lost their 14-year-old. And during our, our lunch, she asked me if she had reached, you know, if, you know, have they reached out to... Um, I can, she connected her to me. So this was still like Redbird was not even a thought. Like this was just, you know, people trying to connect one another in the community. And, um, I told her no. And she said, um, she said, man, she's really struggling. We should pray for her. So at the table, we stopped eating and we prayed for this woman. 10 minutes Mm. later, she walked into the restaurant. Wow. And, uh, of course, like what women do when they don't know what to do, they go to the bathroom because I didn't know what to do. <laughs> so I went to the bathroom. I was like, oh, my oh, God. Is that, oh, is that, is that what happens? That's what happens. Yeah. I was like, oh, my now gosh. I, I finally understand. <laughs> I was like, I don't know what to do. And I felt this like tug at my heart, like the Lord was saying, do it. And I was resisting him because like, what am I going to go tell her? Like, I noticed I recognize you on Facebook. I know you lost your son. I mean, that's super weird. Mm. But it was true. And so I'm walking like out of the back of the restaurant. I, I walk past their table. I stopped to refill my drink and I'm like, oh my gosh, like I stopped. And I looked at my friend and I said, we have to go and talk to her. And she's like, do you want to? I was like, no, I don't want to, but we have to. And but so knew. I knew. And so I went at the table and I literally told her just that. I recognize you from Facebook. I know you lost your son. I'm a mom of loss and we've, we've been praying for you. And she ends up sharing with me that it had been 90 days since her son had died. And she was having a horrible day. And she had been praying and praying and praying. And so she called her friend, who was also a mom of loss, to go and have lunch with her. My friend that I was telling you about, she lost her 21-year-old sister. She had, she went into a diabetic coma and she died at 21 years old. But my friend Amy had also uh, experienced the loss of a baby. Uh, She had a stillbirth. Um, I think it was two years before Emma died. I think so, or two years after, I can't remember. But um, it was four women sitting at this table and she shared just about her day. I shared a little bit uh, about, you know, that I just wanted, you know, to pray for her. And then her friend shared um, her story. And she told me about her son that had died. And then she told me his name. And his name was Talon. Really? His name was Talon. Wow. Her son's name was the same name as my son. What an incredible consolation. Yeah. I mean, that, how did that feel when that happened? I was like, this is the communion of the saints. 
this Amen. is the communion of the saints because like i always thought like john paul the great and yeah that you know and mother Teresa, and yes they are they are you know doctors of the church they're the greatest of the great but here four mothers of loss who are having a bad day and our saint in heaven had moved heaven and earth for us to be able to provide consolation to this woman Unbelievable. Yeah, the intercession of the saints is real. And then mm-hmm. God's, you know, kind of amazing synchronicity, right? Mm-hmm. Where I often tell people who are praying for things to not forget to look at how God answers prayers, mm-hmm. right? Oftentimes through other people. Yeah. I mean, that's ultimately, He's always kind of calling us to the fact that we're a family. Yeah. And so hearing God speak to you in that way so clearly, mm-hmm. right? Not through some vision or manifestation or transfiguration, but just in the everyday, somebody coming into a restaurant, but that le- we, we know there's no coincidences, right? So that level of synchronicity and just at the right moment, you know, God's timing is perfect. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so that just really opened my, my eyes to what was going on. I was like, we clearly do not have no idea what's going on down here, but they do. <laughs> and they are moving heaven and earth to make <laughs> things happen. Um, they got a much better view. Yeah, so it mm-hmm. was really through those, th- that, that was the second thing. And then the third thing, I had this dream. We were on our, we, um, we had our marriage, um, I guess, re-blessed, if that's what you call it, uh, for our 15th mm-hmm. anniversary. Um, I just, got a renewal of a vows. A renewal of, of vows. I just had mm-hmm. this deep desire because we did not get married in sanctifying grace. I had not gone to confession. Ryan had. So I felt some guilt that I wanted to be able to renew our vows in sanctifying grace. And then we went to Antigua. And when we were in Antigua, we went, there was this Caribbean Catholic church and they do church good over there. It was like two hours long. Mm. There was this beautiful, beautiful worship. Um, They brought us up to the front. They said a prayer over our marriage. We got a rosary. They prayed over people who had, uh, they gave a special blessing. Father gave a special blessing for those whose, it was their birthday. Um, It was just a beautiful experience. And that night I had went to sleep and I had a dream. And it was a very, um, very vivid dream where God asked me if I would receive um, the Holy Spirit. And he anointed my head with with oil and like in my naivety, you know, cause I'm still trying to relearn my faith. I was like, yeah, I did that in confirmation, like in my head thinking, thinking that. And he asked me again and I was like, yes. And I put my head in his lap. And then when I woke, like I was like this. And when I woke up, um, my arm was out of the covers and my mm. arm was warm to touch. And usually when you wake oh, up wow. and your arms out of the covers, it's cold. Um, but it's it, cold, it wasn't, yeah. so it felt so real, but just even the setup of, um, of heaven, it was like, I was walking at the beginning of the dream. I was walking through this, like it, like on top of glass that looked like a river, but I was walking and it was, it was cloudy and I was approaching the throne and there was two angels like protecting the throne. And, um, I realized like that's how the tabernacle is like the, like even in our church there's two mm. angels protecting the tabernacle there's in sure. our adoration chapel like 
there's two stained glass angels protecting the monstrance. Um, and it, it just, it felt, it's felt so real to, to me that he asked. And um, the only thing that I could think of what this all meant was, um, was, was Redbird, like, will you accept this? Because he wasn't pu- pushing or forcing me. He, it was, he waited for me to respond. Um, but he had already anointed me for this. I just had to say yes to what he was asking. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. He doesn't do anything against our will. We mm-hmm. have to participate in that. Yeah. Where'd the name Redbird come from? So my friend Misty, um, her daughter, after her daughter died, her cousin sang for her funeral for her funeral um there is a small cajun folk band called sweet cecilia they wrote a song um it's called the Redbird flies and it was about five influent influential people in the community that had touched um the singer well the songwriter her name was laura huval had touched her life and um, one of them was her aunt. One was her father who had passed away from, uh, limp, I think it was lymphoma. Isley was a third. And then in 2015, um, our community um, experienced a tragedy. Uh, we had a theater shooting where two girls were killed, uh, Macy, Bro, and Jillian. Um, and so that was what the the song was about it was about i think of you every time the red bird flies and it was just a profound impact on her life and in her faith since then yeah. laura huval she now um has started a song ministry called joyful i think it's joyful noise ministry and um she's just this beautiful 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 soul that has again turned her gifts into Glory for God. Amen. I'm even thinking about the symbolism, right, of the red bird or a cardinal, right, and how it's this very colorful bird that can be seen and just give people a moment to reflect on God's beauty um, because of its plumage and all of its different things. That's a way that God nods at us as well. And then the the reference to Antigua earlier is interesting, too. I actually have a number of my family members are, are Antiguan. Wow. And, you know, that word in, in the original Spanish, which is the pronunciation would be Antigua, right? But if... if um, not necessarily how they say it anymore, but that just means the ancient one, right? Which is, of course, the ancient one of days. So everything around us, if we kind of see with those eyes of faith and with spiritual eyes, can be a reminder of that love that God has for us. And he's constantly beckoning and constantly revealing and constantly looking and searching. And, and to your point, constantly you know, asking of us to receive a fuller manifestation of the grace that he wants to give us, but we have to respond, mm-hmm. you know, in the, in the affirmative. Yeah. I think one thing too, I want to just share with everyone, you know, there's this, this, this distorted reality where we think that, you know, when we face our brokenness, when we face our wounds, or if we talk about it, that will actually feel worse, but it's actually the opposite. Like even with my marriage, if, someone would have told me that there would have been a greater love than the day we got married. I could have never imagined that I would love my husband and be so joyful now, even through everything we've been through. But that is the grace of what God wants to give us is the grace in our sacraments. And it's, it's this renewed 
restored and he wants to heal us. But our fear sometimes prevents us from doing that. Absolutely. Well, it's counterintuitive, right? I mean, and all through Scripture, we hear, you know, not to think like humans do, but to think like God does. And oftentimes that just runs right, right afoul of how we are naturally inclined, right? Yeah. If, I'm, if I'm suffering with something, giving voice to it means I have to hear it again. Yeah. And I might be wounded again. And so why would I want to do that? But it's in that giving and sharing and in what comes back from who you give and share to that oftentimes we can experience that healing and walk closer to him, right? So it, it's counterintuitive because you, you want to, you know, contain everything and not share. And it's understandable why, but that's not necessarily the way and certainly not the way of God. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that's super interesting. Yeah. But uh, Kelly, before we get to our, um, our final segment here with Wait What, I did want you to share a bit about exactly what Redbird does and then how people can also avail themselves of Redbird and, and, and your book and all of that. And we'll include everything in the show notes mm-hmm. that you share. But just talk a little bit about that practical work that you guys do in your ministry. Yeah, so in 2018 when we started, we had a desire to serve in our community. And we realized that there was no resources. So our position has kind of, our mission has kind of, um, our vision has kind of changed. So currently um, what that looks like is we are partnering with dioceses and parishes to provide grief support resources and tools so that ordinary families like Ryan and I who don't have a theology degree but want to love people has the appropriate resources and tools to be able to start small groups and have grief events in their parishes. We partner in each of our, our diocese with Catholic therapists and spiritual directors and clergy to provide this holistic healing for families so they don't just hear from their peers. They're hearing from theologians. They're hearing from grief, grief experts, and then they're walking and accompanying with not only their peers but also a spiritual director. And this is profound and changes people's lives um, when you activate all of that into their, into their healing. Um, So we have a grief group uh, study that um, is in print. We have a consecration to the Holy Family that's in print that can be done in the privacy of someone's home. We have a couple's workshop uh, that's a one-day workshop that can be done in a parish or a diocese. We also have my autobiography. We're releasing for Lent a Lenten journal that you can do as a small group. And then we have, um, with our winnings from OSV, we're developing our own branded app, which will be infused with different opportunities for healing, like weekly check-ins we'll have, um, which we're kind of already doing, but monthly webinars, just opportunities for support. Um, We also offer spiritual direction. And a new thing that we just kind of uncovered today is that um, there's opportunities for Catholic therapists who are getting their masters or their doctorate that need to do hours we're going to try to start to partner with them to be able to provide support to our um, to our families because there's a lot of uh, a lot of need in that as well oh that's super cool yeah it reminds me of uh, my friend father john hopkins is the president of divine mercy clinics out here in la and that's kind of the same principle it's um you know therapists psychologists sociologists um you know clinical folks with degrees but who approach their work 
from a standpoint of a deep understanding of Catholic anthropology, and it's pretty rare, but it's something that, and, and they, you know, in their work, they, they, they work a lot with, you know, parents and folks who are going through grief. So that definitely is a winning model for yes. sure. Yeah, definitely. Because you don't cons- you don't consider some of the things that these families struggle with. Like I had no idea that part of grief was the fear of losing again, and so a lot of our families contracept sure. and sterilize. And so I, I didn't I didn't understand all of that. But you learn like through the lens of the the church, you understand that there's a lot more to grief than just this this grief. They bring in everything. They bring bring in their family origin they bring in um, their past hurts their past you know sins it, it gets it's a microscope um, but it's also yeah. an opportunity for all that to be healed as well well kelly i'm a huge fan of what you and ryan and the team at redbird are doing um, it's bringing a tremendous amount of hope and grace and well-being to so many people. And so, you know, my prayer is for the continued prosperity of that ministry and for it just to continue to blossom and help, you know, obviously people that are local to you there in Louisiana, but continue to impact people all over the country and hopefully all over the world. Um, so it's a real, real privilege to have you share your story on the show. And, and again, we'll put all of the information that you shared in our show notes so that people can avail themselves of those resources, but just, you know, phenomenal and, you know, Godspeed along your journey. Thank you so much for having us. Absolutely. So um, as we close, are you ready, Kelly, to play Wait What? I don't know what I'm getting myself into. (laughs) (laughs) Sure, let's go. All right. Well, actually, we did something a little different this week because since I know that Mother Teresa is the patroness of Redbird, we've actually themed all of this week's questions on, on Wait What in her honor. Okay, so yes. <clears throat> we're gonna we're gonna get started. There's three questions here, Kelly. Okay. Question number one: Which of these is false about the great Saint Teresa of Calcutta? Which is false about these? Okay. Is it a? As a girl, Teresa was such a good singer that her choir master made her the soloist at her parish. Is it b? Christopher Hitchens, the famous atheist testified against Mother Teresa's cause for beatification? Or is it C, in her life, Mother Teresa would become a citizen of Yugoslavia, India, and the United States? Which of those is false? I'm going to go with B. B, Christopher Hitchens, the famous atheist, testified against Mother Teresa's cause. Actually, Kelly, that's true. In 2001, Hitchens testified in opposition before the body of the Washington Archdiocese that was considering the cause of Mother Teresa's sainthood. So, yeah, he he was a very prominent critic, obviously significant misunderstandings and, uh, again, kind of approaching the, the subject without that without that walk of grace that enables you to see things perhaps you wouldn't but no it was very he, he very much was the person oftentimes in history called the devil's advocate who actually is the person who testifies against the cause of sainthood because that happens in every case okay. with a proposed saint I didn't it, the, know. <laughs> the correct answer is the correct answer is c actually mother Teresa was a citizen of three countries but it wasn't the united states okay. it was one of them so she became a yugoslavian citizen an ottoman citizen and an indian citizen so that was uh that was the 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 true thing so anyway 
You're doing great, Kelly. Don't fret, okay? We're okay. gonna we're gonna try a fill in the blank question next, and again under the theme of Mother Teresa. So this is fill in the blank. Many people know about Mother Teresa's ministry in Calcutta. One of her many acts of charity involved converting an abandoned Hindu temple into a home for the dying. It was free for the poor, and those brought to the home received medical attention and the opportunity to die with dignity in accordance with their own faith. So Muslims were read the Quran, Hindus received water from the Ganges, and Catholics received the anointing of the sick. Mother Teresa, in regards to this home for the dying, was quoted as saying, quote, a beautiful death is for people who lived like animals to die like blank. What is the blank? A beautiful death is for people who lived like animals to die like blank. I'm gonna go and you've said this word already in this, in this show. I know, too, I'm going to go so with know. saints. Oh, so close. Angels. Angels. Okay. Angels. A beautiful death is for people who live like animals to die like angels. That was her orientation. Um, okay. You can make it all up here. Question number three, <laughs> Kelly, because because everybody who listens to this show knows that there's always a time, a time machine question. And this one, any answer goes. So you're guaranteed to get it right. Ready? So you get a chance to travel back to back in time to Dublin, Ireland in 1928. Exploring the bustling city to visit places of Catholic interest, you eventually happen upon Loretto Abbey. And upon entering, you meet an 18-year-old sister of Loretta, Loretto named Sister Agnes. Sister Agnes will go on to become Mother Teresa. Now, Agnes has recently arrived from Yugoslavia and is still learning English, a language that she knows is important for the missionary activity that she felt drawn to since she was a child. She's fascinated by your accent, your American accent. And she asks you, Kelly, to teach her a particular phrase or idiom that's common in the U.S. that might help her to be a better missionary. Knowing the great missionary she will become and what she will mean to all Catholics and to the world, you take a deep breath before you share your thoughts. So, Kelly, which American phrase or idiom do you teach the future Mother Teresa? Oh, goodness. I have no idea. <laughs> Deacon Charlie, I don't, I don't have no idea what I would teach her. Oh, See, everything I, I, I know. Sure gonna, <laughs> I thought for sure you were going to, I thought for sure you were going to say go Tigers. I thought for <laughs> sure you were going to say <laughs> You could teach her anything, 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 any little phrase or what about laissez le, anything? Laissez les bon temps rouler. Oh, beautiful! A little French then, even though she's trying to learn English. Now, what does that mean for, <laughs> Let for people? Let the good times what roll. There you go. Beautiful. <laughs> I love that. And she probably would understand it in French. I don't know. I mean, she spoke a number of languages, but that's great. No, Kelly, you got that one right. So when we add up all your scores, you're a winner anyway. So don't, don't, don't fret about it. But um, Kelly, thanks again for being on the show. What a privilege to have you. Um, and you're welcome back anytime. And, and uh, you know, God bless you and your family and everybody involved in your ministry. Thank you, Deacon Charlie. And if you're listening to our voices, that means, again, it's time to subscribe. Subscribe to this show, share this show, share this episode with anyone who may be themselves going through a period of grief. Let them hear from Kelly's experience so that they too can find that solace and healing. 
that's available to all of us. And we'll see you again next time on another episode of Living the Call. If you enjoyed this episode of Living the Call, please remember to subscribe and give us a five-star review. Tell someone you love about the show and spread the word. Living the Call is available on Apple Podcasts and Spotify and anywhere else you listen to podcasts. You can learn more about the organization behind the show by searching for the Catholic Association of Latino Leaders on any social platform or by going directly to call-usa.org. That's C-A-L-L-U-S-A.org. Living the Call is produced by Manu Kasten and Diego Carranza and our friends at Juan Diego Networks. God bless you and thank you for listening.